Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com give. Well, good morning. It's nice to see all of you this morning and be here to worship with you on the Lord's Day. Uh, This morning, I'm going to preach to you the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, But before getting into our text, I want to speak to you of the significance of this event in Jesus' life, because I feel the need to advocate for its significance. Um, Because for some reason or other, this story, I look back on my own life and the kinds of stories that were told in Sunday school and in church growing up. And for some reason, I think this one, the transfiguration, is always kind of overshadowed by other things. Um, Whether it's the events related to Christ's atoning work, his death, burial, and resurrection, or any number of other miracles or healings that he performed during his ministry, I don't remember the transfiguration ever being one of those stories that was repeatedly taught in Sunday school over and over again. Now, your experience might be different, but that's my experience. Um, And whenever this is the case, whenever there's a part of scripture that seems neglected or less emphasized or kind of in the background, I always ask myself, you know, why is that? Is there something about this passage or this section of the Bible that we don't want to listen to or we want to keep hidden? Or is there something that Satan wants to keep hidden from us? Is there a reason that we have lost sight of any particular passage of scripture? Um, Now, I think this one has been a bit neglected, and I have two theories about why this passage might be that way. Um, One has to do with the tendencies of our day and our age. Now, we live in a day that emphasizes uh, the humility of Christ Jesus, and a day that downplays his glory and majesty. We're okay with Jesus being a humble servant and serving sinners and coming down and laying down his life but we're not so okay with him being a conquering king and a sovereign Lord. We don't believe that those two things, it's hard for us to believe that those two things can coexist, that Christ would be a suffering servant and a a ruling king. Jesus' disciples preferred to think of him as the conquering hero, and they were not excited about the prospect of him suffering and being, and being rejected by the scribes and the Pharisees. They couldn't comprehend how he could be their conquering king and yet be killed. We're the same way in that we can't comprehend the coexistence of those two realities, but I think sometimes we more often tend to want to think, want to think of Jesus as a suffering servant and to deny his work as conquering hero. When Jesus told Peter that he was going to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again, Peter, remember what Peter did? He rebuked him, saying, God forbid it. This shall never happen to you, Lord. Now, I'm afraid we would fall into Peter's error, but in a different way. Rather, I think if we heard Jesus say something like, The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. We would say to Jesus, God forbid it, Lord. That shall never happen. But Jesus is both the humble, suffering servant of his people and the conquering sovereign Lord. He lays down his life for his people and he is coming to judge the quick and the dead 
And we must use both hands to constantly hold both of those truths in front of our eyes. So if we don't like Jesus' majestic glory and, and sovereignty, we might want to hide this passage. Another reason we might not focus on this passage is in the more favorable way of understanding that tendency might be just our natural fleshly weakness. It is often difficult for me to comprehend the glorious and majestic realities that are presented to me in Scripture. Um, just as it was difficult for the disciples to comprehend what they were seeing when they were confronted with Jesus' glory with their own eyes, they didn't know how to understand it. It's often hard to wrap our fleshly minds around the glorious realities of who Jesus is and what he does. And as we'll see in a minute, the gospel writers like Mark find themselves at a loss for words themselves to describe what it was even like, what Peter and James and John experienced. But it seems inevitable, either because of our natural weakness or maybe because of our sin, that even the most glorious things we encounter in Scripture will at times become commonplace and dull to us or overfamiliar. This happens to me a lot with the Gospels, is that you read through, and you've read it so many times, and you often just like skip over what's going on in the passage and think, oh yeah, I've read that before. But I hope that we'll find or recover some wonder this morning at the account of the transfiguration, which really happened um, and was really witnessed by three real men. The Apostle Peter was one of the men there to witness it, um, and he tells, of, uh, tells us of its significance, the significance of the transfiguration in his own life and in the advancement of the gospel. This is what he says in Second Peter chapter one. Peter says, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received glory and honor from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven and, we were, and when we were with him on the holy mountain. And then this is what Peter says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. So we see that the transfiguration was at the center and the, at the heart of what drove Peter in his gospel ministry to preach the gospel, to preach who Jesus was. This was something that he held central in his own life and in the apostolic witness. Um, one of the German reformers, there's a German reformer named Johannes Brentz um, who says this about the, the transfiguration. He says, no synod on earth, now do you know what a synod is? It's a gathering of high church people either to put together a confession of faith or to decide some matter of doctrine and heresy. And Brentz says, no synod on earth was ever more gloriously attended than this. No assembly no Council of Nicaea, no Westminster Assembly was ever more illustrious than this. Here is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Here are Moses and Elijah, the chiefs of the prophets. Here are Peter, James, and John, the chiefs of the apostles. This is a very significant event in Jesus' ministry and in our faith and in what we believe the kingdom of God to be. Um, now, before I actually read the passage, I want to set up for you the context of this passage. So, um, 
There are three gospels, so there's four gospel accounts in scripture. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Three of those we call synoptic gospels, which is a big fancy word of saying that they just kind of summarize our biographies of the life of Jesus in a pretty systematic way and how they go through the life of Jesus. Different from the gospel of John, which is more thematic um, in how he talks about Jesus' life. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, they all record this event right next to several other events in scripture. Now this is not always the case, even if Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about some of the same things that happen. Sometimes they show up in different places in each of those gospels, just for different reasons. But here there's a remarkable unity in what happens leading up to the transfiguration. And here are the things that they all account lead up to this transfiguration. So one is the feeding of multitudes, the feeding of the 5,000, Another is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees ask for a sign from Jesus and Jesus responds and says an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. After that, Jesus privately with his disciples asks them who people are saying that Jesus is and they say, well, some people think you're a prophet risen from the dead or John the Baptist. And then Peter asks them who they think he is and Peter famously confesses, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus confirms Peter's confession and then tells his disciples that he, the Christ, must suffer. And not only that, but he says whoever would follow after him must themselves suffer too and take up their own cross and follow him and deny themselves. And then in each account, Jesus gives this promise. This is how Matthew puts it in Matthew chapter 16, right before what we're going to read. He says, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Okay, so I'm just gonna run through the overview of that context again. Jesus has been doing great signs in the presence of multitudes, of literally thousands of people. In spite of this, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees represent two significant groups of people. You've got the Pharisees that are the, like the conservative religious leaders, like the reformed conservative people. You've got the Sadducees who are more like the liberal theologians who don't even believe in the resurrection. Um, but both of them are unified in refusing to believe in Jesus unless they see a sign. Well, he's been doing signs, but they refuse to believe. And Jesus condemns them and says, um, He says that an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but none will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. In other words, Jesus says, you have signs in the scriptures, and if you don't believe them, you won't believe signs even if I show you to them. And that comes true when he rises from the dead and they still refuse to believe in him. So he says that a sign won't be given to this generation. At the same time, Jesus knows the weakness of his disciples, so he does a few things for them. He confirms for his disciples who he really is. He shows that he is the Christ and tells them that he is. He tells them that his suffering is going to happen, that he must be killed and rejected. And he does this speaking plainly, is what the Gospel of Mark says. A lot of Jesus' ministry leading up to this point is like he says weird cryptic things that are hard to understand and the disciples are always confused. If you read in the book of Mark, this is particularly evident. It's like the disciples never know what is going on. Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and they're like, I never buy bread from the Pharisees. Like what are you talking about? Um, but here Mark says he was speaking plainly. 
And Jesus says, he starts to say as his death approaches, I'm going to be rejected by the Pharisees and the scribes. I need to be killed and I'm going to raise three days later. He says it explicitly. It's no longer hidden under signs and figures, but Jesus just says it explicitly. And it's a kindness to his disciples. And he teaches his disciples that they too must suffer. And so all of these things are mounting and leading to the death of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, which is going to be a dark and terrible time for the disciples. And it's setting the stage for that. But Jesus kindly grants a promise of a taste of his coming kingdom, even in their own lifetime, and then he fulfills that promise, okay? And that's, that's what sets us up for our passage, which is Mark chapter 9, um, and if you would, just leave it up as the sermon is going on whatever part we're talking about because we're just gonna walk through the passage together. But Mark chapter nine, verses one through nine, and this is the word of the Lord. And Jesus was saying to them, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Jesus is speaking with his disciples here. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Uh, let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. So I just want to walk through this together with you. Um, and the first thing we see is that Jesus takes up with him to the mountain, Peter and James and John. I want to point something out that I think should be obvious to us, but it's not. It's that Peter and James and John are the sum of those standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God coming in glory. In verse 1, you see that? Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Um, remember that the Gospels are written by actual men and they have a, an intentional structure to them and one thing comes intentionally after what comes before it. Oftentimes when we come to Scripture and read the Gospels, we see chapter breaks and things and we get confused and divide things in our mind. This is especially a problem. I actually, part of the reason I picked Mark is because Mark so directly connects these two things or our chapter divisions connect them in that we have Jesus saying that and then six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. If you read Matthew, you get to the end of Matthew and it ends basically with verse one of Mark where it says some of you will see the kingdom of God coming in power and then there's a new chapter and we like shift gears in our mind and think that something completely different is happening next but what's really happening next is that six days later after Jesus promised that some of those men before they died would see the glory of Jesus' kingdom, six days later Jesus takes with him three of those men and what ends up happening but they see the glory of Christ's kingdom before their eyes, a taste of it, a glimpse of it. 
Now, why did he take these men? Why did he take Peter and James and John? Well, we know from the account of scripture that these are three of Jesus' closest disciples. Um, Jesus had hundreds of people who followed him around and listened to what he said. There were 70 disciples who were closer to Jesus that he sent out for a special ministry of preaching, of healing. Um, And then there were 12 apostles who held a special office that Jesus gave to them who he spent most of his time with and who he taught the secrets, the mysteries of the kingdom. And then there were three disciples among those who seem even closer and more intimate with Jesus than even the rest of the 12 were. Now this, the fact that Jesus takes up Peter and James and John, just three of them, I think offends our sensibilities of you know, equal treatment and it seems like this is favoritism going on here or something. You know, why didn't, why didn't Judas get to go up? Or why didn't James, the son of Alphaeus, get to go up and see this vision? Why only Peter and James and John? Well, some privileges are given to some believers that are not given to all. Some believers, some of God's people, have and receive glorious visions, and some don't. If you are one who receives glorious visions from the Lord, give glory to God. It is a gift from God. And do not become proud. If you have not received transporting heavenly visions, Jesus says to you, blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. This is what Jesus said to Thomas at the end of the Gospel of John, is that Thomas refuses to believe in the resurrection until he's able to put his hand into Jesus' side and put his fingers into the holes in Jesus' hand. And Jesus says, do you now believe that you see? Well, blessed are those who believe without having seen. There was a special gift given to Peter and James and John, um, but that is offered to all as well as their testimony goes forth and we have their testimony of what happened even though we weren't there. These men, Peter and James and John, were going to have a special task, an apostolic task of advancing the cause of the gospel in many ways, particularly in the life of Peter and John of writing scripture, of writing the letters of the New Testament and the book of Revelation in the case of John, is that this was a special gift that God gave to these men to strengthen them and empower them by the Holy Spirit as they went and preached the gospel and wrote God's word. Why did Jesus pick three men to go with him? Well, everything in Jesus' life and ministry was done according to the law of God. He came to fulfill the law. And even here, everything is done in accordance with the law. The testimony of this miraculous event is confirmed by three witnesses, which is in accordance with the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy in particular, says every testimony must be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And we see here that Jesus' desire is for this event not to be done secretly, ultimately, but he brought along witnesses so that the the veracity, the truth of this event would be verified by the testimony of two or three witnesses. He could have done it secretly just by himself, but his mission was to be the savior of the world, so he makes the testimony sure, and he fulfills what is later written in Acts 26, that these things were not done in a corner, And this becomes even more true when he raises from the dead, rises from the dead, and is the testimony of his resurrection is confirmed by over 500 witnesses. 
that there is no reason to doubt these accounts in this testimony. You have the account of God, of the glory of the kingdom of Jesus Christ before you in scripture. Don't doubt. So Jesus takes Peter and James and John and he takes them up on a high mountain. So what is the significance of going up on a high mountain? Well, mountains have always been considered places for drawing near to God. This is reflected in many pagan religions which try to invent ways of reaching God, but it's also true of the true worship of God, especially in the Old Testament, that God demonstrates his nearness to his people on mountains. It's reflective of the fact that God is high and lifted up and that his ways and his thoughts are higher than our ways or our thoughts. So this is the short list. You've got Mount Sinai, You've got Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, Mount Nebo, Mount Tabor, Mount Carmel, and eventually Mount Zion. All these would hold significant places in the Old Testament of the worship, the true worship of the people of God. And here, the Lord Jesus demonstrates his lordship by ascending a high mountain and taking his closest disciples with him to witness this great meeting between himself and Moses And Elijah, who were men who did significant things on mountains, Moses was the one who brought down the law of God from Mount Sinai. He also died on a mountain on Mount Nebo. And Elijah had his own experience on Mount Sinai that God recommissioned him to go back and continue his work as a prophet. And now Jesus is ascending a mountain and demonstrating that he is the true prophet and the true Lord through his act of doing that. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he had a shining face reflecting the glory of God. Do you remember that? He had to cover his face because he was beaming with the glory of God and the people couldn't stand to look at him because he carried with him the glory of God just from being in God's presence. And we see this carried through in this account of the transfiguration, this theme of brightness, that glory visibly manifested, it comes in the form of brightness. And we see this with Jesus' face, that now Jesus the Lord himself has a bright and shining unveiled face showing the brightness of God's glory. But he carries with him a ministry even better than that of Moses. Moses brought down the law which condemned and convicted. Christ brings with him the glory of righteousness and obedience to that law along with the power to save sinners from the law's condemnation. He brings with him an even more glorious ministry than Moses had. Matthew and Luke tell us about Jesus' shining faith, and both they and Mark tell us about how radiant Jesus' clothes were. And this is one of my favorite parts um, in this passage, Mark's description of how bright Jesus' clothes were. Um, I think, so a lot of people think that the Gospel of Mark is basically Mark, who is a disciple of Peter, recording Peter's account of the things that happened in Jesus' life. So I think this is how Peter described his own personal experience. Um, And he finds himself at a loss for words and can only describe in the negative. You know, It's like when you've gotten your stained white dress shirt back from the dry cleaners, or your dress, your white dress, and they've taken out every stain and restored it to bright whiteness. This wasn't anything like that. It was way brighter. You can't even imagine. That's how glorious it was when his clothes shone with the glory of God. Jesus was bright, but it was still clearly Jesus. It wasn't like a different person had appeared there before them. 
They knew it was him, but it was a transfigured Jesus that Peter, James, and John saw. Now this is a weird word. I think this is the only place in the English language that we use the word transfigured, right? It's like it was invented for this passage of scripture to try to describe what happened here that he was changed. Well, the Greek word here is actually the word metamorphosis. That's the word uh, that it comes from. Um, The context we have that in, or one context we have that is that when a caterpillar changes into a butterfly, it undergoes a metamorphosis, right? And it's difficult to believe that the creature that went into that chrysalis is the same creature that emerges out of it. Jesus, during his ministry on this earth, was clothed in lowly, plain, unimpressive flesh, just like us, unimpressive But in this moment, these disciples caught a glimpse of what was behind that veil, underneath the rough and unremarkable outside of Jesus. For a moment, he looked to them like the divine conquering king they had been expecting all along. And he gave them that glimpse. So Jesus appears brightly, gloriously to these three disciples, but he doesn't appear alone. He's attended here by two of the Old Testament's most eminent saints. Now, what was significant about Moses being there? Well, Moses, as we've said, was the bearer of the law of God. Moses went up on a high mountain and had direct fellowship with God in a way that no one else had. He stood as a mediator between the people of Israel and the Lord. God made his commandments known through the mouth of Moses, and Moses was deeply loved by God. And in this passage, everybody agrees that Moses represents the law and the law testifying to who Jesus Christ is. But along with Moses is Elijah. What's significant about Elijah? Well, Elijah was the prophet's prophet. He performed miracles, maybe more miracles than any of the other Old Testament prophets, even raising people from the dead. He spoke God's word in a time of great opposition to the truth. He believed in God when the whole world was against him. Hundred prophets of the false god Baal and the king of Israel setting himself against Elijah and yet he spoke God's words boldly. And he was transported, maybe most amazingly about Elijah, he was transported at the end of his life directly from earth to heaven in chariots of fire. Elijah was the prophet of prophets. And so you have Moses and Elijah here bearing with them the testimony of the law and the prophets pointing to Jesus Christ who is the Messiah. But Moses and Elijah were dead. How could this be? This was something that just kind of, this is the kind of detail that you just kind of skip over because you become familiar with uh, passages of scripture. So I was reading this to the kids last night and uh, just talking to them about the transfiguration and Danny raises her hand and says, well, wasn't, weren't they dead, Moses and Elijah? And I hadn't even thought of that. It was, oh, yeah, they were dead. This is part of the, the craziness of this passage is that Moses and Elijah had been dead and buried um, and gone for years and years and years. So what's going on? How is this even possible? Well, Jesus was giving his disciples a glimpse of what it would be like when he finally comes back in the glory of his kingdom. Because when Jesus comes back, he won't be alone. When he comes again, Jesus returns, we, you and I will see Moses and Elijah with him, with our own eyes. 
But it won't just be Moses and Elijah that are with Jesus. Who else will be with Jesus when he comes back? I want you to tell me. What? Peter, James, and John. That's right. We will see Peter, James, and John with our own eyes with Jesus. Who else? David. King David will be following in the train of Jesus Christ. Who else? Yes, all of his saints that are his own children, which includes our heroes in scripture that we see. It includes our fathers in the faith, whether it's church fathers or reformers. It includes your faithful mother, your father, departed in the Lord, fallen asleep in the Lord. It includes your son, your daughter, who died in the Lord. Someone in the first service said, the thief on the cross will be coming with Jesus in his glory. But even more wonderful than that, we will see Jesus. Our friend, our brother, our older brother, our shield, our defender, he will be coming and we will see him with our own eyes, even more glorious than Peter and James and John saw him here. He gave them a tiny glimpse, but he will come and his glory will remain and stay. And we still have to wait for that time to come, and the disciples had waiting to do also. But God is so very kind. Jesus knew his disciples had to wait and that they had to endure much, even persecution and death itself, before they would be reunited with their Lord. So he gives them a sweet promise that some of them, before they die, will catch a sight of the glorious kingdom. And then he shows Peter and James and John that glimpse. And it's not just for them. We have the sure word, you have the sure word of the testimony of this glory confirmed by the witness of three faithful men. And one of my favorite parts about this passage, and maybe yours too, is Peter's temporary insanity that comes upon him when this happens. He displays this wonderful mixture of foolishness and faith that just makes me fall in love with the apostle Peter. You know, it's silly that Peter wanted to set up tents for Moses and Elijah who had just appeared out of heaven. It's possibly even sillier that Peter thought maybe Jesus, shining with invincible heavenly glory, needed Peter to pitch a little man-made tent for him to stay the night in. It's ridiculous, but it's wonderful. Danny and I both love the Gospel of Mark because we feel like it makes the disciples very relatable, particularly the Apostle Peter. It's like, yeah, I can put myself there. I can think of times where I was so afraid or starstruck or whatever that words were just coming out of my mouth and I didn't know what I was saying, right? We have moments like that. That's what was happening to the Apostle Peter. He's a man with a nature like ours. And... He may have been dumb, but I think he performed better than I would have in that situation. We read that Peter did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Notice the disciples' response to what was happening in front of them. They fall on their faces in fear. That was the proper response from Peter and James and John. That was what they should have done at hearing the voice of God in the same way that it was right for the people of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai to say to Moses, we can't bear to listen to the Lord. You go talk to him for us. God is the judge who is to be feared and it was right for them to fall on their faces in front of him. Halloween is a time when people seek out thrills and cathartic fear through movies and ghost stories and haunted houses. 
We all want in our hearts to fear something, so we foolishly look to things that can kill us for some sort of emotional release and think that we've accomplished something or met some need when we watch a scary movie and get scared out of our wits. But that kind of fear is an empty fear. And Jesus says, don't fear the one who can only kill the body. Fear God and love him because he is the one who rescues from all earthly fear. Peter and James and John fell on their faces in fear and all other fear left their minds at that time. It was only God that was to be feared. And God speaks with his own voice from the cloud and he makes explicit here what has been becoming evident throughout the course of Jesus' ministry. At his baptism, at the beginning of his ministry, the father expressed his approval of his son and his pleasure in his son when Jesus was baptized. And God here at the transfiguration reinforces his approval of his son, but there's a few things that are different about it. One is just that this time it's happening at the end of a ministry where Jesus has been steadfast and faithful in doing the will of his father, even in the midst of trial and temptation. Jesus has proved who he is now. This is also different because the father adds something that we don't get at the baptism. A little phrase, this is my beloved son, listen to him. He speaks this command in the presence of Moses and Elijah, the quintessential deliverers of God's message. But it's not them, it's not Moses or Elijah that Peter and James and John are instructed to listen to here. Because compared to the Lord Jesus Christ, Moses and Elijah are nothing. They're servants, they're slaves. They exist to serve Jesus Christ. And lo and behold, in an instant, when the disciples pull their faces up from the ground, Moses and Elijah have completely receded into the background and disappeared, just leaving Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Matthew records that Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up and do not be afraid. Here on the Mount of Transfiguration, we see Jesus fulfilling his office of mediator. He doesn't rebuke Peter and James or John for falling on their faces and trembling in fear before God. That was the right thing for them to do. Rather, he takes away their fear, not because God isn't to be feared, but because he, as the mediator, as the bearer of their guilt, has the power to restore them to fellowship with God. If you humble yourself in holy fear before the Lord, if you fall on your face before him, Jesus will come to you and touch you and say, get up and do not be afraid. We read earlier in the service, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you. He will lift you up if you fall before him. Just a few things in closing. One, three things. One, Hope in the coming glorious kingdom of Jesus Christ. Don't trust in chariots or horses or the Republican Party. Christ's kingdom is coming and it is a sure thing. The apostles testified to it, they saw it with their own eyes and we have their sure testimony that we get to read and benefit from. This is what J.C. Ryle says about this account. He says, we have reason to thank God for this vision. We are often tempted to give up Christ's service because of the cross and affliction which it entails. We see few with us and many against us. We find our names cast out as evil and all manner of evil said of us because we believe and love the gospel. 
Year after year, we see our companions in Christ's service removed by death, and we feel as if we knew little about them, except that they are gone to an unknown world and that we are left alone. All these things are trying to flesh and blood. No wonder that the faith of believers sometimes languishes and their eyes fail while they look for their hope. Let us see in the story of the transfiguration a remedy for such doubting thoughts as these. The vision of the holy mount is a gracious pledge that glorious things are in store for the people of God. Their crucified savior shall come again in power and great glory. His saints shall all come with him and are in safe keeping until that day, in safekeeping until that day. We may wait patiently when Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. The second thing is trust the word of God. This is a sure account of who Jesus is and what he has done on your behalf. And when you couple this with the account of his death and burial and resurrection, you have a sure testimony of Jesus' power to save and of his coming again to execute perfect judgment. Lastly, thirdly, listen to Jesus. Obey him, follow him, trust in him, love him. This is how you gain God's approval. God the Father loves his Son. And whoever loves the Son is the beloved of the Father. Set your affection, your love, your heart on Christ Jesus. Worship him. If you seek after him, God the Father approves of you. No matter how weak you are, no matter how filthy you are, if you cling to the righteous one, you belong to God. And you have God's approval through Christ Jesus.